AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for January 10th, 2017. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Nimrod Levy. And Nimrod, you're a backbone network security specialist. And uh, you know we work together quite a bit on uh, dealing with denial of service attacks. So uh, welcome to the program. And uh, give us a little introduction. Thanks. Um, so I've been working at AT&T for, uh, gee, almost uh, 14, 15 years now, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of work in the uh, the common backbone, um, mostly things uh, with our BGP control plane, a lot of uh, things that I do with, uh, with our peering interconnections and uh, lots of, uh, of routing and, and things like that. And uh, more recently, I've been getting into some of our, uh, our DDoS platforms and um, and into the uh, the network perimeter maintenance uh, and other security aspects. All right, very good. We'll get to talk a little bit more about this. I think uh, you're going to have a very new perspective for this program, being sort of involved in the backbone of the network itself. And uh, of course, like I said, we've been working together for some time. It's a pleasure to have you with us. We have Matt Kaiser here. Matt, you're a regular on the program, security analyst and uh, working with the team. So welcome back. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. And uh, Jim Walter. So, uh, Jim, you're with Silence. I'm the uh, senior researcher on the Spear team. Now, tell us a little bit about Spear and what kind of work you do. Spear is kind of a specialized um, research entity within Silence. Um, uh, Silence is a relatively new company. We've been around since uh, 2012. I joined in 2015 mm -hmm. after spending um, almost 18 years at McAfee and then Intel. But um, you know, essentially, the, the you know, one of the core sort of tenets of Silence is to you know sort of take a new approach at threat prevention, mm -hmm. um, not just detection, but actual execution prevention, and, and doing it in a much more intelligent and manageable and scalable way. Because it's become obvious over time, especially as you know, as long as I've been in the industry, that the uh, race involved in trying to produce signatures and you know uh, going about detection and prevention in that way simply simply isn't working. It, mm -hmm. it stopped working quite a long time ago, but it's more and more apparent with, with a lot of these large-scale breaches, issues like, um, you know, we talked about OPM earlier. Um, you know, you could even use the ransom, all the latest explosion in ransomware as a great example mm -hmm. as, as to why, you know, something like a signature or blacklist-style detection slash prevention simply does not work, and yeah. you cannot keep up. So we've taken a totally different approach within Silence, and it's proven to be extremely effective, and, um, and, and uh, it's, it's an interesting and exciting uh, place to be, research-wise, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's, uh, that's, that's where I've been since, uh, um, since 2015. So I've, I focus mainly on uh, a lot of long-term tracking and, and, and research of specific sort of areas of cybercrime, a lot of the uh, personal data fraud and financial uh, of, of fraud uh, actors I, I follow and involved uh, and am involved with. 
ransomware does play a part in that, but I also uh, uh, am very involved in um, you know some of the larger um, scale breaches that, uh, mm -hmm. that that we've uh, you know obviously been hearing about a lot in the news. You know, you know OPM's the name that keeps coming up, but there's many more since, and that's yeah. just one example of several that uh, illustrate the need for something like like our solution. All right, very good, Jim. It's very much a pleasure to have you with us here today. Sure. Realize you travel along. <laughs> a long way to join us here in Bedminster, New Jersey, on one of the coldest days of the year. So uh, very much appreciate you having having you here. So absolutely. Let's. Uh, and, oh, by the way, I'm Brian Rexrode, and I'm you know I'm going to try to host the program here. All today, right. So. Sounds good. <laughs> but I, I'm really intrigued by this. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how malware is evolving, or the different flavors of malware, and how the sort of the signature-based approach to things really has been breaking down. You know, I, I think perhaps what we, I'm gonna make a, a quick analogy, see if this identifies with you at all. I think he, when we tend to look at sort of physical defenses, you know, the military looking at defenses, right. what they tend to look at is, do the bombs cost less than the means to protect against the bomb or sure. the damage that it can cause. And so it's perhaps that sort of thing. If the malware creator can create malware faster and more easily than you can try to block it with a signature-based approach, Absolutely. it probably isn't gonna work. So how do you go about it? Or what, what kinds of trends are happening that have uh, caused us to try to have to look at different approaches? Well, there, there have been um, different ways that malware can sort of self-evolve or, or, or morph its own code, you know, that have existed, you know, since since the beginning of, of, of malware, you know, old mm -hmm. school polymorphic stuff, et cetera. But, um, you know, you, you, you kind of hit one of the nails on the head in terms of uh, when you said that, you know, the, the malware authors can create faster than the, you know, industry can keep up with these signatures or the, or the blacklists. Um, and you know, that's absolutely true and has been true for well over 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, but what's also interesting in, in that is it doesn't necessarily have to be a quote malware author. So there are you know plenty of sort of uh, you know turnkey or off the shelf solutions, you know commercial slash you know for pay or even free um, you know kits to build uh, uh, um, you know customized exploits, mm -hmm. kits to build your own um, variations of different uh, uh, botnets, um, mm -hmm. you know pony, etc. Um, as well as um, you know, with the recent explosion of, of, of ransomware, uh, which again is not an old threat, but it has absolutely exploded recently because mm -hmm. of the rise in cryptocurrency and this commoditization of the uh, you know, ability to build uh, variants of it in mass with mm -hmm. no coding experience. So you, know, you have malware authors and unskilled, you know, sort of skiddies, if you will, that mm -hmm. are uh, deploying this stuff uh, at a massive rate yeah. that um, your you know, signatures are just not going to be able to keep yeah. up with. So let's just dig into that a little bit. So I, you know, I, I suspect a lot of our viewers haven't actually gone out to pick up some of these exploit build kits. And so perhaps it would sure. be useful to talk a little bit about what that is. You know, in my imagination, and I haven't even done it personally. I'm just a pointy-haired pointy manager, by the way. The, uh, <laughs> Matt's laughing. The, um, so I can go out and get a toolkit and basically say, you know, I'd like to craft this kind of ransom message, and there might be an example to work with. And so Absolutely, I kind yes. of choose the types of machines I want to go after. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So if we're talking about ransomware, um, you know, there are plenty of ransomware families now where you, you don't even have to pay anything up front. You know, if we're talking about like... Um, 
uh, if you recall, Petya, um, mm-hmm. which was you know kind of hit the news early in 2016 because it, you know not only was it ransomware, but it also overwrote NBR. Uh, mm-hmm. The NBR and infected systems. Um, you know that started out as just a normal, you know, normal piece of ransomware, but then they went to a uh, a, a service model mm-hmm. where you know you don't even have to know how to code uh, uh, or, or anything about you know the the business of malware. You know, you can just go to their site and basically create an account um, and you know sign up, and you get new newly uh, compiled binaries. Um, Originally, it was every hour. That's kind of changed over time. Uh, but um, you get new binaries every hour to ensure undetection. Right. You know, so they're they're on top of uh, you know staying ahead of the the signatures. So they have the an idea list. how long it takes to create a new signature. Absolutely. If it's yeah. an hour, so, you know, if, it, if it takes two hours to generate a signature, you generate new malware yep. every one hour. <laughs> and and, uh, and you know, so once you you create a, the, uh, an account on the site, you you get your you know feed of new binaries. Mm-hmm. You can set um, what you want the ransom to be. You know, one bitcoin. Right. You know, five hundred bitcoin, whatever. Um, and you have your 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 C two slash admin panel right there in front of you. Mm-hmm. And um, you know the cost involved is just they take a cut of whatever the ransom is, so they mm-hmm. may take you know a small percentage of you know the the two bitcoin that you charge your victims to get yeah. it back. Um, you know that same model exists in rats. Same model exists in you know so-called exploit kits. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, 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 in you know in the non-ransomware world, it's it's been going on for a very very mm-hmm. long time, all the way back to things like Golden Hacker Defender. Yeah. But um, you know, well, it's sorry for the interruption, but. It- I think it's really interesting and actually important that you point out that these are done as a service, mm-hmm. not just as a d- download and you create your thing and create it, but done as a service where you might expect that the uh, folks that are facilitating the service are getting more than just the payment from the folks that are doing it. Right. They're identifying victims. They're perhaps even stealing credentials in the background prior to the ransomware actually taking hold of the machine. So there may be other things going on. Right. They may pick out very select targets to say, you know what, this might be a good target for an intelligence agency or something right. like that even. Yeah. So you, I mean, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I think that notion of ransomware as a service provides a lot of additional opportunities behind the scenes that perhaps we aren't even Absolutely, and it's, and it's only done, um, it, it's only served to increase the explosion as, you know, especially within the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, both both models still do still exist. You know, you do mm-hmm. still have very exclusive, nefarious yet commercial, you know, builders slash kits that are out there. So, you know, Sality, for example, still exists and only sells to very small uh, you know, an exclusive customer base, and it's extremely expensive because of that. So that that does exist, but the overarching trend is to make the uh, building and deployment and persistence side of, of malware as easy and hands off from a code perspective as possible. Mm-hmm. And that has you know only uh, um, you know increased this issue with uh, the industry not being able to keep mm-hmm. up on the on the blacklist and signature side. So how do we strike back? Well, uh, you know, as far as our approach goes, we've we've kind of took a fresh look at it and um, decided to you know leverage uh, uh, a combination of machine learning and artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. You know, to you know learn from 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 what we know as human beings uh, from the history of malware, um, learn from you know the huge corpus of malware that we you know the, the, we all in this industry have access to, mm-hmm. and as a um, you know, as a as a vendor, we you know get new stuff every day as well. So that constantly feeds the mm-hmm. feeds the machine as well. But um, 
you know, we are, you know, not taking a signature approach at all. Um, we are taking a more intelligent approach and, and, and learning from what's uh, already been done malware-wise. Mm -hmm. And we've shown that you can prevent execution of malware on systems without um, having to create a signature, meaning we don't have to see the malware first. So the whole mm -hmm. patient zero issue has gone away. You know, in my you know, previous life before Silence, I can't tell you how many times I had to deal with customers. And, you know, the first question out of my mouth was, can you send me a sample so that we can do something <laughs> about it? That yeah. doesn't help anybody, yeah. especially yeah. the person that you're talking to, because that, that obviously they're already frustrated and then they have to wait for you to, to follow through with your solution. Well, and you have to know about it first. Exactly. Someone has it. to get hit. Right. right, so there's well, a way they to... They not only have to get hit, but they have to know they were hit. <laughs> That's the other side of the problem, yeah. So, you know, we've we found a way to um, fix that mm -hmm. and, um, you know, obviously, you know, build product and intelligence around it. But, um, you know, we've shown uh, through this approach that we can, you know, not only, you know, hang with the traditional guys, but actually surpass them in, front, in terms of efficacy. Mm-hmm. All right, very good. So you'd mentioned machine learning. You know, I've got uh, some opinions about machine learning. I, I'll, I'll emphasize their opinions because I don't have a lot of personal experience, but it seems like you really need to be able to observe examples to be able to make, have machines actually be able to learn something that's, uh, that's going to be effective. Oh, absolutely. That is, uh, machines don't have crystal balls any more than people have crystal balls that are actually can forecast the future or, or predict things that haven't occurred. But you certainly can use it to observe how things are either perhaps behaving correctly or under normal circumstances or what you believe to be normal circumstances right. and flag, oh, this doesn't look normal, and then perhaps investigate further. And then perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, you could observe, okay, we've seen all these different kinds of malware, use those as a reference example, and then try to learn what characteristics are unique about those compared to uh, perhaps a normal operating environment. Is it, yeah. am I on sort of on track on how the approach is at a general level? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, you know, when, when the company formed and the technology was kind of being born, you know, obviously it had to, we had to, you know, start training and start building the models and start mm -hmm. trying to figure out what the, you know, actual math behind everything would be um, to not only create sort of the basis, but, but, but uh, enable the uh, you know, mechanisms that would you know, learn going forward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, we absolutely spent a lot of time at, the, you know, at the genesis of the company, you know, doing that training and trying to um, sort of, you know, get as much data as we could from, you know, all of the uh, malware that we could. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a company built uh, for, by industry veterans. Um, and, and, you know, everybody has access, you know, even if you're not in the industry, you have access to tons of malware, but, you know, everybody has access to plenty of stuff that they can use to train. But, you know, to, to, to get back to your, your point, you know, and and to, to to probably overly simplify things, you know, if you take you know one copy of Locky ransomware and 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 another copy of Locky ransomware, in my logical human mind, there's no reason why if if an AV product detects this one, it shouldn't detect this one. Right. But we still to this day see that exact thing. Mm -hmm. Locky here gets detected. Locky comes out tomorrow and it's not detected. It's mm -hmm. behaving the exact same way. They've only made some rudimentary changes to the file to evade that right. signature. And that's where our approach is different. You know, mm -hmm. we, we understand that it's still the same thing. Yeah. We've seen it before. We've tuned our models to that behavior. And therefore, we prevent the execution, whereas something that requires a signature is going to let it run. And you have the same old scenario that you've been seeing since 
since the 90s. Mm -hmm. Have there been any recent examples that you could use to say, you know, this was a good learning exercise in terms of how behavior, well, let me, let me back up for mo just a moment here. You know, I've been actually, I've been saying for years that there's very little revolution in attacks. Sure. It's, uh, it's very evolutionary in nature that even, you'd point out sort of changing the files, but the, the actual attack activity or the, the behavior of the malware will be pretty much exactly the same. Features may get added over time. They may point to different command and control. They may even use a different means to point to the command and control over time. But it's an evolution in right. capability. It doesn't all of a sudden turn, you know, start out as a you know simple stupid thing and all of a sudden become immaculately sure. smart and you know resistant sure. to uh, the detection. Are there any examples that you're that you could share with us about you know how? The evolution in time can be counteracted. You're not chasing the signatures, rather you're chasing. You're basically evolving the learning process, perhaps. Well, um, you know, there's I don't always mean to put you on the spot. Very, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, there's always some very minor things that you know may come come along. You know, we mentioned um, you know Petya and the MBR thing. That mm -hmm. before that, we hadn't seen that behavior right. in a ransomware yet. So, uh, you know, that uh, changes the forgive, bit. But. Yeah, forgive the interruption, but some people, folks may not be familiar with the MBR, that is master boot record, Correct, yeah. modifying the master boot record. You know, if you don't have a master boot record, that's, you have a brick. Yeah, if yeah. there's not good integrity in the master boot record, I should say, um, then you have no chance of having integrity anywhere downstream. That is, it can modify the boot process exactly. or even destroy the boot process itself. Destroy, it's the yeah, first in this thing case, the yeah, it'll, when, when you're infected with that particular threat, it, um, it, it actually overwrites it uh, with its own data and right. you get this you know, nice little skull and crossbones. Instead of booting, you know, right. you get a nice little skull and crossbones animation. Right. So, and, and you can't get past that. Yeah, um, sorry for the interruption. No, that's all right. Uh, but, um, you know, we do see some, 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 some minor deviations in, in, in some of the more sophisticated stuff. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right that a majority of the attacks and the malware are really not novel, um, you know. But you know, occasionally you do see some some, some very interesting stuff that is mm -hmm. you know occurring, not not usually in isolation. You know, it's usually a component of a, a larger campaign. But um, you know, we, we, you know, for just an example, generally we see a lot of interesting stuff in the China and Russia realm yeah. you, that aren't using malware at all. They're leveraging, you know, very uh, clandestine scripting through PowerShell. Everything's done in RAM. Um, so, you know, when you don't have a file to scan or create a signature with at all, then you have to, you know, well, how are they doing this? And, mm -hmm. and at what level in the system are they doing this? And, you know, what processes are involved in allowing it? So then, you know, we, 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 we've been battling that for, for a couple, two or three years now, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, that's when you have to start looking, okay, well, how do we, you know, monitor things that are happening in RAM? How do we limit um, the ability of certain processes to execute certain code or run certain scripts within, you know, you're limiting injection at that point so that mm -hmm. you prohibit the stuff from occurring in memory. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a file being written to disk then executed. Mm -hmm. So you see some, you know, that's kind of the more sophisticated stuff that definitely falls outside of the as a service turnkey world. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, those are that's maybe one example of a kind of deviation or, or evolution that we've seen that, you know, sort of changed the game a little bit. But mm -hmm. um, I, I've never seen that approach in, in solitude. It's always, you, you have all this other usual stuff going on, then maybe one part of the attack is this, you know, maybe that's, that's stage one to get in, and then they do all these pivots that are 
not mm-hmm. novel. Mm-hmm. So it kind of depends on on the actor and the in the campaign. But you know that's that's one area that we've seen where you, you have to pay a little bit of a pay attention to a different area. I would say mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about machine learning. I think as folks or even you call it system developers, whatever level you want to to look at it, we have this tendency to think about things in terms of how we expect them to operate, but mm-hmm. don't necessarily put in the constraints to keep it operating within those constraints. So you pointed out some things like uh, controlling how different parts of memory could be accessed. And I think that's a very important principle that is to the extent that we can use machine learning to observe and say, this is how we've observed it to be operating under normal circumstances and then put controls in place prior to being attacked. You're not chasing the attacker at that point. You're basically just observing their attempts to attack you and are impervious to it. So that's a very powerful point. Yeah. It sounds like you're using machine learning as an alternative to things like file hashing or Yara signatures, the Mm -hmm. old things that IV has been using for a long time. But once you've built that feature set out, I imagine you're, you're evolving it somewhat as you get new things in, but that set of relevant features, is it that different from a signature? Is it not possible for malware to take a look at that feature set and somehow evade it by changing, by... by it, it, it is very different, yeah. It's, 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 we refer to it as a mathematical model. It only gets updated. It's not like a DAT file or DLL or something that resides on the system. Um, well, it doesn't reside on the system. I shouldn't say that. But um, it's, it's, you know, we only have to update it roughly every you know, three to six months. It's definitely uh, you know, not the same as a, as a Yara SIG or, or, or a, you know, a, a hash-based uh, uh, file check. Um, and, and, you know, I've kind of oversimplified it, you know, with, with, with that example, with the lock mm-hmm. example, um, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, the, the, the traits of a file and the kind of approach that we take, we're actually looking at, you know, several million, what we call features within mm-hmm. a file and the behavior in the context of a file or a process. And, and then, you know, there's a score um, that mm-hmm. is aligned with with that behavior, all done in real time. So it's um, not as simple as a, a, a you know A B one zero binary yes mm-hmm. no. Um, there's actually scoring involved, and uh, you know, like I said, several million um, uh, uh, features or traits of, of that file, the execution of the file, and the context of the file um, that that are um, uh, reviewed uh, when uh, that file is manipulated or attempted to execute on a system or mm-hmm. inject on a system, yeah. um, and that's where where we. Uh, where we're coming with our approach. Yeah, you actually, uh, you reminded me of the point, the other point that, uh, again, I feel was buried in your statements. That is, you've seen some interesting things from Chinese and Russian actors. Uh, there are perhaps others, but the uh, I think the significance here is in any security environment, we need to always recognize that it's not a predictable thing. That is, there are actually creative thinking people behind the, the, uh, the activities that are taking place. They're deliberately trying to subvert any detection or protection mechanism oh, you have in place. Yeah, so don't, it, yeah. we're always going to be chasing that. We should never underestimate the fact yeah. that, that the, the bad guys are, um, you know, at the, at the you know, commodity level, it's a business. They want to yeah. make money and they want to keep their stuff on systems as long as possible and as stealth as possible. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to do whatever they can do to ensure that. Um, and same thing with the, the uh, higher level, more sophisticated stuff. So, mm-hmm. so absolutely, they're they they're well on top of it um, and have been for for quite some time. And it, it's uh, um, dangerous to to think otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. 
It's a very good discussion. Any f additional comments you'd like to make or before we? Uh, no, I'm just you know, okay. happy to be here and, and uh, <laughs> you know, you know, enjoying the discussion. Okay, well, we're not done yet. <laughs> Please feel free to, to uh, step in as we go along here, but I really appreciate the discussion about um, how malware is evolving and uh, how we need to be uh, protecting against it. Sure. So, all right, thank you, Jim. And uh, Nimrod, let's go to you, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that you're working on. And again, we introduced you to the uh, working on backbone security, and I think predominantly looking at things like uh, DDoS defense activity. So what kinds of new technology are we uh, looking at, and how is it going to help? Well, uh, so you know, one, of the, one of the key things that we do during, uh, during a DDoS attack, um, you know, besides reactive things like black holing, um, you know, the, the destination, which effectively completes the DDoS for the attacker. Um, but, um, you know, we, we like to be able to do better than that. Mm -hmm. um, we we want to be able to, to filter that traffic more intelligently. So, um, you know, sometimes we can do things with, uh, with access lists. And the, the best place to put an access list is on your ingress perimeter. Mm -hmm. um, so in order to make that work, though, you've got to touch a whole lot of routers, especially in a network our size. Mm -hmm. um, one of the fun things I like to say about AT&T is that we don't really do anything different from anybody else. We just do a lot more of it. Uh, it's just a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, in order to maintain that security perimeter around uh, the edge of the network, they, there's a lot of places that you have to touch. And depending on the scale and scope of your network, there could be different vendors involved that adds to complexity of maintaining that perimeter. Mm -hmm. So some real smart people um, got to thinking about how, how can we do this a little bit better. Um, and if there were some way to you know, transport um, access list information in some protocol and provide that to those edge devices, then those edge devices could dynamically update those, uh, those perimeters mm -hmm. without having to go in and, and touch each piece of configuration on, on each router. Mm -hmm. Turns out we already have protocol sessions established to every one of these routers, BGP. So they got together, they started thinking, we can do this BGP flow spec. Instead of, um, instead of distributing routing information that tells you how to get to a particular prefix, um, we can tell the router what to do with a particular prefix, similar to what we do in an ACL. We can match on, on, on network, on prefix, uh, mask length, packet sizes, port protocol, all the, the basic things that you can match on a, um, uh, in an ACL. Um, and we can also do things like uh, they have different actions like accept, drop, um, modify the next hop. Um, there's even some VPN-based things where you can route the traffic into a particular VPN. Um, so there's all sorts of really nifty things. And the, the, the really slick part about it is it's all carried in a, in a new address family over um, BGP. I say new, it's not really that new, but um, the, the, the router vendors have, have started implementing it much more widely than, than has been previously the case mm -hmm. um, relatively recently. So let me see if I can uh, paint the picture a little bit here. Perhaps we have a customer, they're under denial of service attack, 
And um, I, I think we, you know, as you're well aware, we have a DDoS protection service. So we, we, we don't really have to just black hole them. We can send the traffic to a scrubbing facility and to uh, scrub those packets out. But I think perhaps what you're talking about allows us to expand that capability to be able to selectively route traffic into the scrubbing facility and perhaps to uh, selectively block traffic right at the perimeter. Do I have it about right? Exactly. So, um, so once you get your network set up to the point where you can, um, you can push that traffic into a, uh, a VPN, uh, an MPLS VPN to, to direct it to the scrubbing facility, mm-hmm. then, um, then you can use that. Yes, you're absolutely right. You can more granularly divert the traffic to the, um, uh, to that scrubbing facility. Mm-hmm. And then also, yeah, you, uh, you can, if there's, some piece of traffic that that uh, that you know that the customer never ever wants to see. Say it's say you've got a web server that they're you're protecting. You don't want to see UDP 123 coming at that uh, that server mm-hmm. uh, from the outside. So you can just block that right at the perimeter. Don't even bother sending it to your scrubbing facility, um, and uh, and just save that bandwidth right there. Mm-hmm. So it provides a lot more flexibility in how you can dynamically control things on the network itself and uh, allow the scrubbing to focus on the things that really, where you really need something above the network level. Yep, absolutely. Yep, very cool stuff. So um, I guess, so we have an illustration here. I think it makes sense to to give credit where it's due here. This was from a presentation that was done at Nanog, and um, I think it's uh, credited to Alcatel-Lucent. Tell us a little bit about Nanog and their role in the the security of the network world. So um, Nanog is uh, the organization, the North American Network Operators Group. Um, It's, it's, most, uh, it, it's an uh, organization that they, they have very technical meetings uh, three times a year. Mm-hmm. They, um, they've really worked re- very hard to keep it a, um, a, a place where it can be a, an exchange of a technical forum um, and, and also to, um, uh, for primarily for smaller networks to, uh, to meet up and, and encourage uh, peering and, and interconnectivity. Um, between between those networks, it's uh, it's a great place to um, for for networking people to go and and just really build uh, relationships with uh, with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, they, there's a mailing list um, that um, there's there's a lot of noise on it. I'll I'll admit, um, but um, I think one of the topics you you touched on last week, um, the uh, the spike in NTP traffic mm-hmm. um, that occurred. Um, Towards the end of last year, there uh, that turned out from the the Twitter application. Right. Um, I think it was Twitter. Um, they that was very heavily discussed on the Nanog mailing list, um, and uh, I'm sure there were a number of side conversations on on other forums, um, some more focused on NTP in particular. But there was there was a lot of um, discussion. Hey, um, I'm seeing this on my network. Does anybody else see see this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a really neat way to um, uh, to, to for people to exchange ideas and uh, uh, and information. Yep. You know, I think you make a very valid point or a very important point, and uh, perhaps you didn't intend to, but I think it's a valuable one nevertheless. That is, uh, there have been a lot of activities to set up what I'll describe as formalized groups for sharing information 
threat information or, and things like that. You know, I, I think I've said it a number of times before, one of my favorite books on the topic of security actually is really on the periphery of security. It's uh, Bruce Schneier's book, Liars and yeah. Outliers. Yep. And um, he, he takes it outside of the technical realm and talks about, you know, tribal behaviors and how people have difficulty sharing things with people when they don't know who they're sharing it with or when the group is too large. And I think what you're sort of pointing out is that this is a group that it's basically among folks that know each other and basically trust each other and are willing to share information about what's going on in a less formal manner, which tends to be more effective. Now, it doesn't solve the scalability problem, but uh, having groups like that, finding sort of your niche, your community, your tribe, so to speak, for sharing threat information or information about your observations or being willing to ask questions that might, you know, you might feel uncomfortable asking a large group uh, is really important to sort of your growth and, and your technical capabilities. All right, very good. Nimrod, it's uh, very much a pleasure having you here today, and uh, thanks for those insights. And, and for folks that are viewing, for Jim's case as well, if you have questions about uh, things that we've been talking about here, please, please feel free to email us and uh, you know, ask us some questions. We'd like to talk with you about it. So Matt, let's go to you here, and we'll uh, talk a little bit about the, um, I, I guess, perhaps a little bit of segue from what we've been talking about with Jim here is uh, an example of some of the more sophisticated attack activity. Um, DHS came out with a report, talked a little bit about, or provided some indicators and things like that. So what are some of the challenges that come from that? So the report was a joint DHS-FBI report referred to as Grizzly Step, mm -hmm. and this is I'm not going to go too much into the politics side of it, but basically the, they're pointing a finger at the Russian intelligence services and saying there are a number of hacks that have occurred over the last few years. We are attributing them to Russian intelligence services. Here's a list of the names by which it goes, and here's a few indicators to help you find this sort of activity on your mm -hmm. network, which sounds great. However, the way it was provided and the level of detail has caused a little bit of consternation mm. among the security community. So let's dig into that. They called out APT28 and 29, I think fairly accurately, as the, the big names behind this. Mm -hmm. They then provided a list of 48 groups, campaigns, malware, and other names of things that are associated with it. But they had things like PowerShell Backdoor, mm. Havex, Sednit, Sofacy, Black Energy. So a number of commonly available tools or used or commonly used tools. I shouldn't say commonly available tools, but used tools by uh, malicious actors. Sure, but they're, 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 mixing in, they're mixing names yeah. of tools and groups and campaigns mm -hmm. without the context behind them. Here's a bunch of names to worry about. I'm not going to tell you what they are. Mm -hmm. So that's the first problem. You're starting to mix and match what you're actually talking about. Mm -hmm. And then provided a list of uh, domains and URLs and IP addresses. And I think the domains were actually fairly good, except that some of them appear to be hacked sites, yeah. from my analysis. Well, and then generally stale anyways. Right? Generally, yeah. and that's another thing. There was no time frame provided for any of these indicators. Mm. These, this is analysis that I assume has been going on for several years, but how, are all these still worth worrying about? Especially the ones when they, after further analysis, they show that they're things like Google or mm -hmm. Yahoo or things that people will be connecting to all day long. Mm -hmm. And that leads to false positives. In a particularly notable case, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Burlington um, Electric Department up in Vermont used the report and immediately came up with a report saying, oh my goodness, we've been a victim the whole time. Mm -hmm. And the Washington Post reported on it and the next day had to retract and say, 
actually that's not the case. Yeah. Because some of these indicators may have not been truly malicious. Mm -hmm. So if you're a group that's trying to use this sort of threat indicator data for the very first time, or even an experienced one, I think people who haven't been paying attention and are starting to pay attention as a result of this report, if I were them and I took a look at this and I started digging into it, I'd be immediately disheartened. I'd say, I'm mm -hmm. never going to use this kind of information if it's going mm -hmm. to contain this much noise. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think fundamentally that's one of the big challenges that we've been running into. That is that this threat intelligence or sharing threat intelligence, particularly as you get into, uh, if you have very specific information that's, that's helpful, it's in that in-between space where, you, you know, domain names, IP addresses, by the time you get the information, it's either stale or it's, a, a, an IP address is not exclusive. A domain name may not be exclusively used for a particular function. Yep. And so it, it makes it very difficult to use it in context. It may be useful to say, okay, I'm gonna put a little flag on this log to say this is associated with a suspect activity and perhaps investigate it further, but it certainly doesn't provide you any conclusive mm -hmm. evidence that something real has taken place. Sure, and especially given the wide range of campaigns that were, they were talking mm -hmm. about, untangling that back to say, was I a victim of Cozy Bear? Was I a victim of Onion Duke? Mm -hmm. If you wanted to know that and you wanted to tie that to the TTPs that are public about these, you could do it. Mm -hmm. so, so there's a right way to do this. And mm -hmm. Well, and all those campaigns are definitely not necessarily exclusive to these events either. Mm -hmm. all right. it's, it's, there's, all, there's a number of misleading things, that, that being a big one, so yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think this could have been handled in a different way. And it would have been a lot more work. Don't get me wrong, it would have been a lot of work to tie all of those indicators if they hadn't already been done so. And I'll side what, you know, just let us aside, I personally think there might have been another version of this report that had to be boiled down to an unclassified level. Mm -hmm. And that may have cut out a significant amount of context. That's so I can understand That's why it might have happened. But from anybody on the outside of that close community, it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing I think you need to do is to minimize the false positives. Go through that list, and if you do have things like Google in there, provide context as to why and when you actually have to worry about it. If someone's mm -hmm. using you know, Google Docs as their command and control, absolutely, I would like to know about it, but I'd like to know more than just any time this IP address you know, gets flagged in my firewall, set the world on fire and run around with my head cut off or whatever panic metaphor you want to use. Mm -hmm. um, provide as much context as you can when you can. And I realize, mm -hmm. again, if this is at a classified level, you're going to have to cut some out to get it out on class. But to know what to look for besides just IP address, and it says this IP, some of the context was like, this IP address is located in Swaziland. Mm -hmm. OK, that's nice. <laughs> but it tells me absolutely nothing for defending my network, mm -hmm. unless I can reasonably block all of Swaziland, in which case, go for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That may not be a difficult thing to it, do. <laughs> for some companies, it may not. I mean, if, if you're a very yeah. small company, yeah. you, you may be able to block 90% of the internet and get yeah. your business still done. Um, Good point. And the other, <laughs> the other thing is, how confident are you in these indicators? Yeah. I mean, I think it was all presented very much at a flat level, this is all mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. And to most folks, that would be, is this all bad, you know, start panicking, or is this all bad, maybe I'll check on it after lunch. Mm -hmm. Especially with that log, large of a list, most groups don't have a dedicated, like large companies will have people dedicated to threat intel and mm -hmm. hunting and, and looking after this stuff. Small to medium sized businesses, probably not. They maybe probably have one not. guy who's IT and one guy who's security. Yeah. And you're going to take up the rest of his week looking through all these indicators for something that may not affect his vertical, mm -hmm. may not affect this country. You know, it's important to have that kind of context. Yeah. Um, 
And I also would have liked it if they were to differentiate the actors for those different IP addresses, URLs, et cetera. Again, mm -hmm. present as much of the picture. I mean, I understand it complicates how you have to report it. You've mm -hmm. got to have much more, and you have to say, here's the list of IPs for group A, list of IPs for group B, mm -hmm. et cetera. But it definitely helps if you have someone who's a go-getter and can go back and say, okay, I'm going to read Company X's report on Cozy Bear. I know more of what I need to look for, mm -hmm. and that helps. Yeah, it's very interesting. So I think one of the, uh, my personal feeling is that we have to get past these little individual indicators. It's kind of the signature world in, in mm -hmm. terms of malware, get past the signatures of the individual malware and get to a means where we can convey information about behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. That, uh, and uh, Jim, just as a, are you familiar with any work in that area about having sort of a standard for sharing behavioral type mm. I mean, there's, I don't know of any sort of standardized format or anything along those lines. There's certainly plenty of sort of ad hoc efforts to, mm -hmm. to do so. And you could even argue that to some degree, something like uh, Sticks and Taxi attempt mm -hmm. to dance around that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, they, they provide the framework to be able to share it yeah, once you figure out how to code it. Exactly. Right? <laughs> they provide enough verbiage to define this is a behavioral thing and not a flat file or you know yeah. IP address or whatever. But you know again, you have to know how how to, to how to use that context mm -hmm. and use that language uh, correctly. And then you know uh, under what channels do you distribute that information? And you know it gets uh, a little bit messier from from that point forward. But mm -hmm. um, you know, I completely agree with with you know everything you've said. The, the way in which that information was a little bit. It, it was presented was very disorganized mm -hmm. and misleading. Um, and I would go further to say that a lot of potentially relevant information has already been released publicly. You know, if you take mm -hmm. like the CrowdStrike stuff at face value, you know, you have some of those pairings of, of actor to artifact to IP or URL or whatever. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's stuff that they probably could have uh, included from already public non-classified data that might have aided in providing context to this stuff. But as it is, it's just kind of a hodgepodge of, you know, potentially, you know, really unrelated stuff that is causing people to, uh, you know, not fully understand how, how the landscape works mm -hmm. in, you know, amongst these attackers. Yeah. Um, well, so, yeah. it, I don't want to pick too much on this particular report. I think it's a good example. Um, well, it, it, two things. One, I wouldn't want to discourage DHS and others from you know, continuing to perform this activity and improve on that process for sharing information so that others can protect themselves. I think there's a learning exercise on both sides of the table, mm -hmm. so sure. to speak. And from a user's standpoint, to be wary of information that's received and uh, make sure that there's, you understand the context around it. If you're lacking context information, just be a little sus suspect in how you use it and, and, right. and not jump to conclusions too quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, my hope is that we'll be able to continue to practice on this and become better as we go along, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I just wanted to mention, though, yeah. the, the analysis that I'm providing here, some of it was not my own. Uh, Robert M. Lee and, and Andrew Morris put out some very good blogs about this very subject. And there's even more detail than we went to here, so I would say anybody who wants to really dig into the meat of how this could be done better, they're great places to read. All right, so let's uh, talk quickly about the Internet Weather Report here. Top 10 most per ports is the first item that we'll take a look at, port 23 at the top of the list. Uh, a new port that's uh, not new this week, but certainly has shown up relatively recently is port 23.231 TCP. It appears that's being used as an alternate TCP port on some devices, and alternate. so there's probing activity around that. Alternate Telnet port? Uh, that's what I believe so, yes. Okay. 
You said it's in a TCP port, and I just wanted oh, to make sure. It is, in fact, a TCP port. It is. Used for, but not an ultra, used for Telnet, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Matt, for correcting me. And then we see some 53.413. That's uh, that Netis router backdoor. We'll take a little closer look at that. Port 37777 TCP. That one actually has some interesting properties. We're going to dig into that one a little bit further. It popped way up on the list. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing that probing, again, port 37777 TCP shows up on the list there. And uh, we also have, in second place there, having moved up eight spots, port 7547 TCP. That's the one that's associated with the uh, CPE WAN management protocol that is uh, CPE devices, uh, typically home routers or DSL modems that might have a management interface on them. There was a uh, issue with uh, some vulnerabilities in specific devices that uh, caused a significant uh, stir about a month and a half ago. So we'll take a little closer look at the activity that's taking place there. So digging in on uh, port 23 TCP, this is the Telnet port on TCP. Looking at the last 90 days of activity here, it's actually, I would say, relatively good news. It looks like the activity has trimmed down a little bit. I think some activities may have taken place to try to um, block some of the command and control associated with some of these more prominent DDoS attack botnets. I'm not sure if that's been a significant deterrent here, but it does sort of lend some credence in the sense that uh, there has been a reduction in the amount of scanning activity on port 23, predominantly looking for uh, the security surveillance camera DVRs. So we'll hope that trend continues in that direction. Looking at port 23231 TCP, the alternate telnet port, I don't know specifically what devices are involved in this, but it appears that some devices may be offering telnet on this port, hence the you know, use of the 23. There was also some scanning activity we've been investigating previously on port 2323 TCP. Uh, that seems to have uh, uh, tapered off a bit. But uh, this is one port that was identified by Johannes Jolrich on, uh, in his write-up on the Sandstorm Center. I'm going to provide a more specific link to that uh, in the next portion of this as we talk about port 37777 TCP. So in this particular case, we are showing probes and sources of probes taking place here. I'm only showing the uh, graph in terms of the number of probes that are taking place. But this is one that was identified in a write-up by uh, Johannes Ulrich. He also quoted, actually, or referenced a, uh, a blog from uh, Bajern Ruberg. Uh, in this particular case, basically what they said is it looked like somebody's trying to enable remote access through NAT using universal plug-and-play configuration. So basically what they're seeing is some table mapping probing activity, mm -hmm. and they picked this up on a, on a honeypot. Is that right? Yeah, it, it looks it? like the request is being pushed in to open up very specific ports. Right. And these are the same ports that we've seen over the last few weeks that Mirai and other botnets like it have been scanning right. for. 23, uh, 23, 23, 1, etc. Mm -hmm. So this may be a precursor to further scanning of these devices that are known right. to be vulnerable. Yeah, so it, this is a case where you would expect your home router device to be blocking access from the internet and universal plug and play is designed that if you're on the LAN side of it, you're supposed to be able to open up some ports to be able to perhaps perform peer-to-peer -peer 
but sometimes used in gaming activities or to uh, perhaps host something inside. Mm -hmm. And this would perhaps be a case where they're looking for devices that are inadvertently exposing universal plug and play to the WAN side, and they're trying to probe and perhaps reconfigure those devices so that it opens up other ports to provide access. So um, this is something perhaps uh, worth paying attention to, particularly for folks that are using universal plug and play. My personal recommendation is turn off universal plug and play on your devices unless you really, really need it. <laughs> so uh, any updates on this, we'll, uh, we'll keep you posted on it. But what, basically what we're seeing is, uh, I would say some modest probing activity. This is in the order of million, hundreds of millions of probes. It's somewhat spurious now. So it looks apparently a little bit experimental at this point. We'll see if there are any uh, developments on that as time goes on. Oh, in, incidentally, in the blog, it sort of points out that that port 37777 is typically used for video streaming on some of the DVR devices. So um, perhaps a little in contrast to what we typically see here. Uh, another one that's kind of shown up here or resurged is uh, scan probes on port 53413 UDP. This is that Netis router backdoor that we've seen from uh, time to time in the past. The activity we're seeing here is not significant relative to what we had been seeing uh, some months ago, where it was literally up in the, uh, I think, billions of probes per hour. Here we're only seeing on the order of you know 200 million probes per hour. Again, not nearly as significant. And in fact, it's only coming from a couple of source addresses from a hosting provider in Germany. So very limited in nature, relatively speaking. And then uh, a relatively good news story, I would say, scan sources on port 7547 TCP. This is that CPE WAN management protocol that was uh, associated with a outage that was in the media associated with Deutsche Telekom. Uh, we had reported, in fact, I'll go ahead and show the map with you here. We had reported back on November 28th about how widespread it was around the world, but very little evidence of that activity in the United States. That is, uh, there were actually three vulnerabilities that had to occur with these devices, these CPE devices that uh, allowed this exploit to take place. Uh, one of which is that the land management interface had to be exposed to the internet. Another one is the credential had to be not set or you know, had a weak password associated with it. And then a third part of it, actually, it was the fact that it didn't have any credentials at all, if I recall correctly. Right, <laughs> there, there was, was no, no requirement for credentials on the land side interface. And then there was interface. a very particular request that you made. And there was a particular, it was a, it was a command injection attack that was, That's uh, right. yeah. that was in the coding. So three basic the vulnerabilities NTP in NTP server configuration, I think. Uh, that's, and that's exactly right. That's, uh, so nevertheless, uh, it was very widespread, not in the United States. Since then, uh, the activity has curtailed significantly. The number, amount of activity, we showed that in a graph as well. Geographically, we're seeing a little more dispersion of the activity. I think that actually is probably related to uh, folks that are probing around, checking networks to see where this port is, not necessarily associated with the botnet specifically. A lot of that activity actually has since been corrected, although I still see some sort of heavy areas in uh, parts of Europe as well as in uh, Australia. So hopefully they're getting that, that issue straightened out. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel, on YouTube, as well as on iTunes and an audio podcast. 
You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. And Jim, do you have a Twitter handle that you use? I do not. Oh, you don't? Okay, no so social we don't media. need to share it here. <laughs> <laughs> I find it actually kind of difficult to follow Twitter myself. I do share this, uh, this program on Twitter, but um, you know, I think I remember an analogy. It's kind of like walking into a room with about 10,000 people screaming at you. Yeah, I removed myself from all that some years ago. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, I'd like to thank you, Jim, for joining sure. us today. My pleasure. It's very much been a pleasure. And uh, Nimrod, thank you for joining us as well. And Matt, thank you for joining us. Sure thing. I'm Brian Rickstra. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.